Hi everyone, this is Caleb, and I'm so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me here in the Learner's Corner. And today I'm honored to be joined by Patrick Miller to talk with him about his brand new book, Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. Now, if this happens to be your first time listening to the podcast, I want to tell you about a couple of things that inform pretty much everything that we do here. We want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations, which we're going to have one of those conversations that can be difficult today in tribalism and politics. And how does that intersect with uh, Christianity as well? And the other or a couple other things is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree completely with them, that we can disagree from them and still learn from them. We can learn from anything and from everything, whether it's something serious or something a little bit more fun and maybe trivial. And we want to do it because we want to be the person for maybe the people that we're leading or for the next generation that was there for us, or maybe that we wish was there for us. And we want to work through those things. We want to learn those things and how can we become better and particularly as it pertains to this topic of tribalism and politics, it's really important for us to figure out how to do this and how can we deal with the problems of today so that we don't pass those on to future generations. Now, if you enjoy this, one of the best things that you could do to keep up with us is by subscribing to my newsletter where I give you all of the different things that I am currently learning from. And Truth Over Tribe has been featured quite a bit there you know, as I was preparing for this interview, I discovered their podcast as well. And Patrick just has a lot of great articles and everything that he's written as well. And so if you want to get some of that stuff and some of the things that I'm thinking about, some of the things that are capturing my attention and my curiosity and imagination, subscribe to the newsletter. I send it out once a week and you'll get things like podcasts or documentaries or really just anything that is just capturing my curiosity at the time. So let me tell you a little bit about Patrick and then we are going to jump into the conversation. Gospel Coalition and many other publications as well. He is the uh, the co-host of the podcast Truth Over Tribe and interviews uh, many leading Christian thinkers, writers, and scholars. And honestly, I think a lot of what we try to do here on the podcast is in, in some ways similar to what he does on Truth Over Tribe as well. And he is the co-author of the book, Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. Patrick is also a pastor at one of the most politically diverse churches in uh, at the crossing. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, Patrick, it's so good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Hey, it's great to be here. I'm, I'm excited to chat with you and get a chance to talk with your listeners. Yeah, and just as we're getting started, you know, one of the places that I love to start a lot is I love hearing the origin story behind, you know, a, a work of art. In this case, you know, it's, <laughs> it's your book, Truth Over Tribe. And even I feel like it's even bigger than the book because you started the podcast before that. But I would just love to hear kind of the origin story for you and then um, your co-author, Keith. 
Yeah, well, I went into this laboratory and a radioactive spider bit me, <laughs> and the next was history. No, I'm just kidding. Obviously, that's Spider-Man's origin story. We, we are we are far less interesting and uh, than Spider-Man, far more normal than that. We live in the middle of Missouri, flyover country, so there's nothing special about us. Uh, but one thing that perhaps makes us a bit unique in terms of the United States is the fact that we live in the city where the flagship university of Missouri is located. And so like most university towns, it leans pretty heavily left. So we are this little blue dot in a red state. And that means that our church is from the day that it started had to be politically diverse. We had people worshiping alongside one another who voted for different presidential candidates. We had people in small groups with each other who voted for different senators. And that, that's always been a part of, of our church, that people had to feel comfortable uh, sitting alongside someone who doesn't agree with them on everything. And if you didn't feel comfortable with that, the reality was our church was going to be a pretty uncomfortable place for you to worship. And, and that was always the case up until 2016, and then especially in 2020. Uh, the Both of those years, those presidential elections, were, were watersheds in their own right, when it, it became increasingly difficult for people in our politically diverse congregation to love one another across political tribal lines. And so we started asking the question, why? Why all of a sudden is it harder to love your other partied neighbor? Why all of a sudden are cultural issues dividing us in ways that they haven't divided us in the past? You know, 10 years ago, someone came into my office with a deep, profound question. It was probably going to be about, you know, election or God's sovereignty or should you baptize babies? You know, those were the kinds of things people wanted to talk to me about. And I would love to go back to that reality, uh, but I don't get to. Now the question Questions people come into my office asking me about are cultural questions. They want to talk to me about LGBTQ issues. They want to talk about CRT. They want to talk about Donald Trump and January 6th and vaccines and COVID and masks and all of these things that well, I do think the Bible has something to say about, but they are not necessarily the things upon which the Bible spends most of its time uh, focusing. And so again, we were just wrestling with uh, how, how do we talk to these issues? And so we did. We, we started trying to speak to them. And and what we discovered very quickly was that people didn't want the Sermon on the Mount. They wanted the sermonizing of Tucker Carlson. They didn't want the pages of scripture. They wanted the scriptural pages of the New York Times. They wanted us to parrot their favorite pundits instead of proclaim what Jesus has to say. And, and so, again, this, this made just pastoral ministry and life inside the church increasingly difficult. And what it showed us is that whereas we have maybe, you know, two to three hours in any given week for the most committed Christian who's coming to church every single week, uh, social media and media in general has the rest of the week. Cable news never stops. Social media never turns off. And it turns out that they were discipling people in our church far better than we were. And so in the midst of all this tumult, all of this anxiety that I think everybody is feeling, uh, we realized that we needed to figure out a way to disciple our people in the politics of Christ, not the partisanship of one party or another. We needed to find a way to help people reclaim some of the core central ethical tenets of Jesus's teachings, like bless those who persecute you, <laughs> love your neighbor. Uh, don't forgive seven times, forgive seven times, 77 times. These things that Jesus said, which were radical and which had this profound ability to tear down tribal walls and to build bridges. And so that's, that's really the origin. This comes out of our ministry experience more than anything else. Hmm. Man, there's so much there that I want to follow up on and, and ask you about. I think, um, Maybe I just want to start with what are some of the changes that you guys have made, you know, at the crossing or even even just you personally to better 
like disciple people through this? Yeah, well, you know, interestingly, w- w- technology is for sure one of the causes of political polarization. Uh, there's tons of research that's already been done. It's in the Wall Street Journal. It's on 60 Minutes. You can go watch The Social Dilemma. You can read Shoshana Zuboff's book, uh, Surveillance Capitalism. Lots of great resources showing how these social media companies uh, needed to make money because they weren't making any money. And the way that they made money was by keeping people on their platform so that they could collect data on those people, sell that data to advertisers who could then sell their products to the uh, individuals on their platforms. And the way that these companies kept people on their platforms was through emotion. It turns out if you want to keep humans on your particular platform, you have to keep them emotional. And there was no emotion that kept people engaged like outrage. And so over time, they began to feed people more and more and more polarized and outrageous content because they realized if I can keep you enraged, I can keep you on the platform, I can sell you more ads. And this affected the outside of social media media environment because now all of a sudden newspapers, which were also struggling and even cable news channels, all of them were struggling with the internet and how that changed reporting, how that changed news, how that changed how people think. They realized that the only way they were going to reach people was if they picked a team. Because if you pick a team and you stay outraged at the other team, there's going to be a group of outraged people who will pay you in subscriptions, who will pay you in views and time. And so that's what they did. And so you had this environment created by technology, which was really exasperating uh, tribalism in a way that we haven't seen probably since the 1960s, maybe since the Civil War. And and so I say all that to say this, how do you disciple people? Well, man, obviously there's so many things that the church has always done. We need to worship together. We need to be in small groups and build friendships with people who aren't like us. We need to learn how to listen, how to admit when we're wrong. We need to show generosity and kindness to those who are different than us. Those are things the church has always done. But I do think that technology presents new opportunities to disciple people. And we've really embraced that as well, saying that, okay, you know what, you might only be able to be here on Sunday mornings and maybe go to a small group throughout the week. That's fine. Uh, But we want to reach you where you're at. And the way that we've sought to do that is is largely through podcasts and online content. We said, okay, if if Tucker Carlson's going to try and disciple my people, we're going to try and do it better. We might not be on TV every night, but we're going to create podcasts and blogs and, and, and educational opportunities that help people to, uh, again, really uh, ground their political theology in the words of Jesus, not a party platform. Yeah. Can you give maybe a recent example of something, you know, a topic or something that you guys have done to to better engage and help people think through that um, in, a, in like a, 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 I guess I want to say a Christian way or a way of, to help people follow Jesus? Yeah, I mean, on our podcast, Truth Over Tribe, we we cover about every imaginable cultural issue. We really don't shy away from any topic. But the way we come at it is not with a partisan axis to grind. So we want to talk about LGBTQ issues, but we're not going to come at it from the far right with an axe to grind. These kids are trying to, or sorry, these, these people are trying to dream, groom your children. They're trying to rape your children. They're trying to steal your children. We're not going to come at it from the far left, which is saying, uh, if you don't fully affirm every LGBTQ, 
LGBTQ uh, identity and reality. You are a misogynist. You're probably a racist. You're probably a demon incarnate. Neither of those are helpful ways of, of, of thinking through this. So, so we said, okay, how can we explore the issue of, uh, how can we explore LGBTQ issues? And one way we've done that is by bringing people who are thinking about these topics biblically into our podcast and interview and interviewing them. We got to have a conversation with a guy named Greg Johnson, who has uh, been attracted to the same sex his whole life. And he's a pastor and he he's, he's chosen to be celibate. Um, and, and he shared his experience and his story and his research that he's done into how Christians have thought about this issue. And it turns out that for, throughout most of Christian history, the response to um, whether someone was, was gay or lesbian uh, was to care. Like the normal response of the church was to show care, to welcome people into your families. And, and about in the 70s and 80s, there a new option came on the table, which was to cure. So this is Exodus International. was a notion that we can uh, cure you of your same-sex attraction. And, and, and Greg's out there saying, you know, I, I'm not sure, given the data, that it ever actually really worked for much of anyone who was solely attracted to the same sex. And he is saying, let's get back into a care paradigm where, where the church becomes a hospital for people who are attracted to the same sex and a hospital, not in the sense of curing them, but a hospital in the sense of we, we are hospitable. <laughs> we welcome people into our lives. So that's just one example where we're, now we're trying to take the teachings of Jesus and what he said about how we, how we love those um, who are struggling with things that might be different than what you and I struggle with. How do we love for them? How do we care for them? How do we help them carry their burdens? And so that's, that's one small example, but you know, that's going to offend both people on the left and the right. It's going to offend people on the left is they're going to say, you're not LGBTQ affirming uh, because you, you won't let, you know, you, you don't think someone like Greg should go get married to a man, but it's going to offend people on the right because they say, oh, you know, these people want to attack our kids and we should be able to cure them. Don't you think the gospel can, 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 can change those things? I say, well, yeah, of course. I think the gospel can change just about anything in anyone's life, but we're trying to orient ourselves around this, not with a culture war mindset, but with a biblical mindset. What's the Bible say? How does the Bible challenge us to care for people? And it seemed to me like the care over cure paradigm was one example of that. Yeah. I actually talked with Greg earlier this year, and so I'm from, and I listened to your episode too, which was just a phenomenal conversation. Yeah, yeah, he's a great guy. He, I, I really look up to him because you want to talk about someone who, who, who really has to treasure the beauty and the goodness of Jesus mm. by laying down the thing that our culture says is most important, which is erotic love. I mean, our culture says erotic love is is not just the most important thing; it is the most defining thing about your identity. And he set that aside to say, you know what? The love of Jesus is more satisfying. Now, for me, as someone who's attracted to the opposite sex and who's, uh, you know, is married, I, I'm so grateful for his example because it reminds me that, you know, my wife is not the ultimate be all end all of my identity and reality. My sexuality is not the ultimate be all end all of my reality. Jesus is better than that. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that especially whenever you have conversations like that, you're going to get some pushback. You're going to get some uh, criticism might be the nice way of, yeah. of saying it. Um, how have you learned to engage with someone whenever they're bringing, you know, all of this anger, all of this outrage, you know, as, as you mentioned earlier, and you're trying to, you know, respond in, in a kind way as Jesus would respond. Yeah. What is, what's helped you do that? 
Well, I, I should start by saying uh, I, I have failed in that. I feel like as many times as I've been successful <laughs> in that, um, I, I don't think there's anything natural about responding to someone who is casting aspersions on you, someone who is attacking you or cursing you or misrepresenting you or misunderstanding you or saying unkind things about you. There's nothing natural about responding to that with kindness and generosity and love and charity. Every muscle in your body wants to go the opposite direction, whether that whether that's just to run away from the situation and flee it or to go into fight mode and fight back and attack. Um, and so for me, this really comes down to sanctification that Jesus quite literally has to change our hearts so that we see the enemy and say, that's someone that I want to love and that I want to engage with. Um, and, and that's something he has to do inside of our hearts by his Holy Spirit. I think on a practical level, this is a lot of the stuff that we talk about in our book, Truth Over Tribe. Mm -hmm. There are very practical things that you can do to love that person. Perhaps most important is simply to listen. I mean, Jesus asked more questions than he answered. I don't know many humans who that could be the case for. <laughs> yeah. I for sure have answered more questions than I probably asked in my life. But he was a question asker, not because he didn't know what was happening inside of people's hearts, which by the way, I don't know what's happening inside of people's hearts. So I don't even have that advantage. He has that advantage and he still asks questions to draw people out. And I think part of that is because nothing makes us feel more unloved than when we're misunderstood. And when we're misrepresented. And so that person who is attacking me, uh, obviously is coming at this issue from a different perspective. The best response I can have is to seek to understand them, to ask questions about their view, to understand that they're a human with a story and that their view on this issue didn't come ex nihilo out of nothing, right? It came out of their story. And so the more I can treat them like a human, and I mean, a lot of this happens online. And so it's really easy just to treat people like dehumanized digital avatars. No, there, there's a person behind that keyboard with a real life who, who you who you have the opportunity to engage with. And so that's part of it is just listening. I think the other part of it is admitting when you're wrong, admitting when you don't know, having a certain level of humility about your own knowledge. I find in my own life, and there's actually lots of studies, it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. It turns out um, that you are most confident in your knowledge when you are most amateurish in your knowledge. Which sounds a little bit silly, right? So, like someone, mm -hmm. uh, let, 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 let's say, let's say we we're talking about uh, toilets, how toilets work. If you don't know anything about how toilets work, you will likely say that you know nothing about how toilets work. Uh, but if you are an amateur in toilet repair, you will more likely than not give an overconfident level of certainty about how much you personally know about toilets. But if you went off and talked to a plumber, he would probably actually give himself a lower confidence level than you. Why? Because he actually has a proper understanding of how much he knows about toilets. He knows this other plumber who knows more about this part of, uh, you know, how septic systems work. And this other plumber who knows this part about how septic systems work and his expertise is here. And so he properly evaluates his own knowledge. And so, again, I think this is one of the ways that we embrace it is like a lot of these digital wars we get into. We're talking about topics that we aren't even experts in. And so if I'm not an expert, what, what do I have to lose by saying, well, maybe this person is right. And, and maybe they do have some information that I don't have. And I don't want to be an amateur who's overconfident in my knowledge. And so the best way to do that, again, is by listening, by showing kindness, by asking questions. And if it turns out you're wrong, what a gift. I mean, I, I don't like being wrong. <laughs> I, I, I don't like having bad ideas. The only way that I'm going to resist that is, again, if I have a relationship with someone who can challenge me. So one of the stories that really stood out to me and reading your book, Truth Over Tribe, is the Aletheia Project story. Would you mind sharing that? 
Yeah. So it's, it's kind of got a, a long backstory, but it, it provides a really important context. Uh, in our city, we, we house, I think now, the largest documentary film festival in the country. It's called True False, fabulous film festival. And about 12 years ago, maybe 13 years ago, uh, we reached out to the festival directors who, as you can imagine, these are secular progressive people none of them are christians uh we have huge amounts of disagreement in terms of our politics and our worldview all kinds of different things but we reached out to them we said hey what you're doing with this film festival, it's great for our community. It's bringing people into Columbia. It's helping restaurants and businesses flourish. It's bringing art and beauty into our city. And, and we just love to be a part of it. And so we came up with this wild idea of, of uh, basically being the sponsor of a nonprofit thing that would happen every year inside of the film festival. And so they'd pick the subject of one film and we would raise money to help them uh, with whatever was going on in their life or whatever cause they were a part of. And so it was this really amazing partnership between, again, a secular progressive uh, film festival and an evangelical church. And it was so unique that uh, it drew the attention of people like Christianity Today and the New York Times, a lot of these media organizations, because they said, we've never seen anything like this. Like, where in the world do you see secular progressives and evangelicals getting along and partnering together? And more importantly than that, it built friendships. You know, we built really deep, profound friendships with the festival directors. People from our church bought festival passes. They were in attendance. Many of them began to volunteer. Some of them went on staff at the festival and the other way around, people from the festival coming to our church and becoming a part of our church community. And so it was this really beautiful story of bridge building where no one else seemed to be able to build bridges. And, and really, I think it was the power of Jesus at work mm -hmm. in our community. And because it was going so well, we got this idea. We wanted to do something called, we called it the Aletheia Project. And the idea was we would bring progressive films into evangelical churches and then house conversations between secular progressives and evangelicals with the goal of building bridges in those local communities. And so we got this thing off the ground. And interestingly, I mean, from the start, it, it, it met resistance, right? So the first thing we did is we, we showed a film about third-term abortions in our own church and then housed the debate about abortion. And we're a pro-life church. Um, and as you can imagine, that offended some people in our church that we showed a film that was clearly promoting third-term abortions. Uh, but interestingly, it caused a lot of consternation inside of the festival because they said that uh, they were legitimizing us, a pro-life church, by even coming inside the building and doing mm -hmm. a film. But we all kind of said, you know what? Those people are going to exist on every side. We're bridge builders. We're, we're going to be conversation havers. And so, you know, if they're offended, they're going to be offended. Um, all of this keeps going well. We're going into churches. And we end up going out to, to New York, and we do one of these at Tim Keller's church. And two weeks later after that, that was our big launch. Um, at our church, we were going through the book of Genesis, and we get to that rather tricky passage where it says that God created them male and female. And because we preached through the Bible, we preached a sermon about uh, transgender issues. And the heart of the sermon was, look, the Bible's clear. There are only two immutable genders. But the focus of the sermon was on, we need to love our trans neighbors. Even if this is true, and that doesn't mean that, that we should be on the attack against our trans neighbors. It means we should be welcoming and embracing and kind and generous towards them. Um, and that was the heart of the sermon. Uh, but the sermon really deeply offended the progressive community in our city, such that people began to protest uh, True False, the film festival, mm -hmm. and said, uh, you guys need to cancel your partnership with this church because they are homophobic, misogynist bigots. And interestingly, a lot of the people protesting weren't even people who went to the film festival. 
Um, but it did put the festival in a really tricky, difficult situation. And, you know, I, I don't know if I could have done anything differently if I was a leader, but they eventually kind of capitulated to the demands and wrote a public letter, uh, which could have been way more condemning than what it was, but, you know, condemning us and saying that what we believe is wrong and they don't stand for it and they can't be in a partnership with an organization like us, a church like us. And that ended this de over decade long partnership between us and them. And it was really really, really tragic, you know, because I'll be honest, I don't feel like our cities felt the same since then, because it was this loud communication that what, where we once could build bridges, no longer <laughs> can we, can, can we build these bridges? Um, but in the midst of that, we really had to figure out how we would respond as a church. I mean, you know, I, I guess some people would say that we got canceled and in, in a really loud public in the newspapers way, we, we were publicly maligned and attacked and bad things said about us. It was in national publications. And so we say, well, how do we respond? You know, do we respond in kind? Do we go on social media and say, hey, these guys knew our views on all of this. They're all faking it. They're all lying to you to go on social media and say, you know, all of you people are are mean and evil. And how dare you say these things? You know, do we issue our own public statement condemning true false for what they did to us? How do we respond? And the good news is it actually wasn't a very tough decision to make. We knew how to respond because Jesus already told us. He said, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. And so that's what we did. Myself, other staff members, people in our church, we, we, we said, we're going to get on social media and say, yes, this partnership was canceled, but we love True False Film Festival. I got on, I said, hey, please, if, if you've been buying uh, tickets and passes, please keep going. Let's keep supporting the festival. Let's keep volunteering. Let's keep being a part of this because what they're doing for Columbia is great. Everything we said positively, everything we said publicly was positive about True False. We said not a single negative word to anyone, anywhere. And afterwards, I was grabbing lunch with the festival director and he was talking to me about this and he finally stopped and he looked at me and he goes i, I just got to be honest with you i was shocked by the response it was a master class on grace how did you guys do that i don't know if i could have done that and of course i want to say well yeah it's because we're amazing people i'm an awesome person i've got my life together and i looked at him and i said you know what this really has nothing to do with me I i've been i've been trained by the master of grace we did this because this is what jesus told us to do and we wouldn't do it apart from jesus so this isn't a master class from the crossing to you on grace this is jesus's master class of grace that he gave to us that we are just trying to live out and again, I think that is a totally different orientation than what we are seeing inside of the culture warriors who seem to think, they seem to think that suffering is not a normal part of the Christian life. Mm -hmm. They seem to think that taking up your cross is something you should never have to do. They don't want to take up a cross. They want to take up the flag and the power and be in charge. And the irony of it is every time Christians try to take up that power, it rarely goes well. <laughs> it rarely goes well for them. It rarely goes well for the society. When Christians lay down their lives and love their enemies and then often are given places of influence and opportunities to shape culture as a result of their character and how they're living, that's the path. That's the path to true lasting power. And we know it's the path because that's a path Jesus took to defeat sin and death. And so that's a path that we've tried to take in our own church. Man, again, I feel like you just keep dropping like bomb after bomb after bomb. There's so many things that I want to uh, ask you about for that. But I think I want to, you know, go back to, you know, what you what you mentioned and you said that, um, 
you know, they, they wanted you to agree completely with them or affirm them of just go, you know, you everything that we're doing is okay. And I think there is a strong tendency in that, regardless of whatever issue you're dealing with, is like, yep, you have to agree with us completely 100%. I'd just love to hear your thoughts on what do you think is behind, yeah, you know, obviously tribalism is behind that to some degree. I would just love, um, yeah, for maybe you take a stab at explaining what's behind that. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think part of it's just human. Uh, we there's something in our internal wiring that that um, maybe positively wants wants agreement and harmony, um, but maybe negatively wants to be in control of other people's thoughts and realities. Um, which is, of course, there's only one person who gets to be in control of the thought and reality of others, and that that's God. And it, no shocker, humans uh, want to step into the shoes of God and play God for one another. But that's not an invitation that Jesus ever gives us. He gave us the Holy Spirit. He didn't ask us to be someone else's Holy, <laughs> Holy Spirit. And that's a big, big, big difference. I, I, I think why it's become so prevalent now actually has a lot to do um, with the dissolution of truth. You know, 200 years ago, everybody would have agreed that there was such a thing as capital T truth. And we could argue over what that truth was, but no one disagreed that that reality had a truth-shaped uh, uh, form to it. And these days, it's really shifted. It seems like more and more, everybody has their own lowercase t truth, which they think is a capital T truth, but everybody's got their own little lowercase t truth that they're fighting for. And when you live in these little lowercase t truth realities, how you know it's a lowercase t truth is because the only people who can speak truth and who can be trusted, who are reliable, are people who are inside of the tribe. There's no external disconfirmation, right? So uh, unless you're in my tribe, I don't have to listen to you because you are de facto wrong. That's the lowercase t truth. That's relativism, right? Relativism says uh, relativism says that um, there is no objective reality outside of me. Okay, all that matters is my own subjective perception. Now you can do that on a tribal level, right? If your tribe is so subjective that they say only what the tribe says is true, and no objective reality outside of us can challenge us, you are a relativist. There are raging relativists on the right right now. There are raging relativists on the left right now. I think people think of that as a left problem. It's not. When you have people on the right, I mean, we interviewed this guy named Greg Locke, who's kind of this anti-vax, um, COVID's a conspiracy, just wild ideas, right? And, and I asked him uh, towards the end of the conversation, you know, when it comes to uh, the COVID vaccine, you know, how certain are you about your position on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the most certain? And he looks at me, he goes, I'm, I'm 10 to the 22nd power, man. I'm as certain as you can be. I said, okay, uh, is there any evidence I could show you that would prove to you that you were wrong, that, that would make you change your mind? No, no, there's no evidence that you could show me. I've, I've looked into it. There's nothing you could show me. I know I'm right. That is relativism, mm -hmm. right? We think of relativism as like open-mindedness, like I'm open to anything. No, relativism is when you are so certain about your own subjective reality that nothing outside yourself can make you question what you believe. And we're seeing, again, radical relativism on both sides of the political aisle right now. The problem is when you don't have shared truth, there can be no persuasion. There's no shared truth. I can't convince you. You can't convince me. And in the absence of persuasion, there is only coercion. And that's why people are so passionate about forcing others to believe their reality. They believe that uh, whoever has the most power, whoever's in charge, that's the person who defines reality. And they are happy to coerce others to believe their beliefs if it gives them the power to define reality. They don't need to persuade. They just need the power. 
And so again, that, that, that is why we are seeing this fight over truth where there is no conversation. It's just my side is right. And I, I won't even listen to, I mean, I was listening to a podcast this morning from a guy who, who essentially said, well, if you speak positively about this person, if you like anything that they say, then you're discredited right off the bat. I'm like, well, that's a, that's a really bizarre view of reality as though um, there's a human out there who has absolutely everything wrong. But that's, that's how these people think. If you're out of the tribe, you, you, you can't speak. And so I will coerce you into believing my beliefs. How do you talk with someone who, you know, is dealing with, with that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, the, so let me pull back the camera a little bit. Yeah. The amount of people who are actually radicalized, like they are, they are so deep in the trenches of some form of partisan tribalism that they they really can't see outside of it. That's actually a very small proportion of our population. Mm -hmm. There was a study done by More in Common that found that uh, it, it, there's there's about 8% of the population that are um, highly tribalized progressives and about 6% of our population that are highly tribalized um, kind of MAGA conservatives. Uh, the vast majority of the population actually exists between those poles. Um, they're kind of the exhausted middle, <laughs> the exhausted majority. A and those people are still very open to persuasion. Now, they might be very afraid, right? Afraid that if I break with this tribe's orthodoxy, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to get canceled. They're afraid that if I break with this tribe's orthodoxy, I'm going to lose relationships. I'm going to lose uh, connection to family members and everybody else. There's lots of fear on, uh, to, to go around for, for everybody right now. But what I found is that when I talk to people, um, I have to determine really quickly, am I talking to an extremely tribalized person or am I talking to someone who's still open to persuasion? Back to those questions I asked. If I asked someone that that one to 10 scale question, 10 being the most certain, if I asked the evidence question, what evidence can I show you? If they tell me that they are a nine or a 10 on an issue, and if, and if the only evidence I can give them is like totally outlandishly, unrealistically possible, I, 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 to be frank with you, I, I would move past that conversation about as quickly as you could, mm -hmm. because that's not a person who's open to reason. That's a, that, that, that is a radical relativist. That's a person who there, there is no persuasion. And for them, if you want to win family members like that over, it's not going to be by having an argument with them because it's like talking to a wall. The only way you're going to win them over is by loving them. Mm -hmm. You have to have such a quality of life, your kindness, your generosity, you give them your time, you give them your money, you give them your resources. If you love them well, you will win a hearing. But it's probably not a hearing to argue the issue. It's going to be a slow over time erosion in their head of the bad ideas that are misforming them. Is that, that That's the only way But I know how to respond to those extreme people. To the people in the middle, it's a combination both of loving them and having a quality of life with them, uh, but also of, of having open conversations where, you know, model for them what you would like to have happen to you, which would be sitting down and asking them questions and listening and not defending your position, just trying to understand. You'll be shocked. If you spend an hour with someone just asking them about their perspective and their ideas, they will almost inevitably give you the same opportunity in the future. And when they do it, if you're trying to persuade them, you'll actually know what they believe. So you won't miss the mark. You won't misrepresent them. Um, and more importantly, you'll know what to say that might actually persuade them to change their, their, their view on a topic. Hmm. I want to go back to, you know, you, whenever you were doing or showing like the progressive films at your church, you know, yeah. you, 
and you mentioned that there's a lot of people who are like, why are you doing this? Why are you showing, you know, this, you know, that probably a lot of people were saying, you know, this false truth, you know, there. Yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, like, what do you think is behind that fear of engaging with an idea that is so different or something that we might disagree with, especially as it pertains to, you know, Christians and our faith? Because if there's, you know, we should not be afraid of like pursuing the truth, even if it's something different than what we may be inclined to believe. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think you already hit the nail on the head. I think we are right now, the body politic, our, our country is overloaded with anxiety. The system is just charged to the absolute brim with fear right now. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of contextual reasons for that, but this is historically unique. We are seeing a unprecedented, when we're talking about quadrupling, sometimes quintupling of rates of anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, something is happening to us right now. And it's not that hard to figure out what that something is. Um, We lived through a pandemic. Turns out there's a lot of grief and a lot of heartache that comes out of something like that. Turns out that being isolated from one another for very long periods of times doesn't make us more uh, mentally healthy. I know hardly a person who's in a better spot today mentally than they were before the pandemic Mm -hmm. because we were made to be together. We were made to have relationship. But in the middle of a pandemic, when you're isolated in the middle of a pandemic, when loved ones are dying from disease, uh, dying from a virus in the middle of a pandemic, when everybody's scared, if my kid gets this or my mom who's, you know, immunocompromised gets this, you are just loading this system full Full, 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 full of anxiety. There was an interesting study that was done that 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 looked at the differences um, in in searches for radical online searches for radical ideologies. So this would be things like white supremacy, for example. So I'm looking for the local, you know, KKK chapter or you know, Nazi uh, chapter. Those kinds of searches. Um, they went up tremendously in areas that had um, uh, stay-at-home mandates for longer than ten days. And I say that just to point out, like, what's happening? What's happening is that we live through something. And we, and we Americans, we, we are an up and to the right culture. We do not know what to do when we're going down. And we all went down. Yeah. <laughs> and we didn't grieve it. We didn't process it. And the net result, again, is just this tremendous anxiety. So, you know, when, when people are fearful about bringing uh, others into their spaces who have different ideas than them, they're, they're they're fearful of of losing uh they're feel they're fearful of of losing influence they're feel they're fearful of losing power they're they're fearful that this might somehow change their organization there's some sense of loss that they're trying to avoid and again in this environment we've all lived through tremendous loss like what wherever you're at on covid and whatever you think about covid we all lost everybody agrees like that was bad okay you can tell me which part of it was bad i'm the weird person who says I think all of it was bad, you know, like, like this was all really awful. Um, but regardless, when you go into these situations that, that that loss comes to life and fear, because now you're afraid of losing your church. Now you're afraid of losing your church friends. Now you're afraid of losing your pastor. Now you're afraid of all these other things. And so when, when people get that, that fearful reaction, that fearful response, I, I think it's helpful to just go a layer deeper than the issue that's on the surface, because this isn't about showing a progressive film. Like, we're a pro-life church. We talk about that. No one was questioning where we were at, right? This wasn't about, hey, let's change our minds on this issue. And, and to be frank, anyone who watched that video and walked out uh, more pro-choice has some sort of demented part of their brain. Like seeing people abort babies 
like literal babies doesn't make you say, gosh, now I get it. Now I know why they support. I mean, that was the irony of the film. I think it kind of had the opposite effect. Um, but all that to say, the fear in the system, that's the thing you have to talk about, not the surface level of issue of why did you show this movie? No, there's something underneath the surface. Mm-hmm. What were some of the things that helped you guys, you know, at the crossing get to the point to wherever you could show that, you know, could show those types of films because, you know, some people just might not be able to handle it or some congregations, you know, it might take a couple of things or a couple of, of steps to get to that place. What were some of the things that you guys did to get to the place to wherever you could show those types of films or engage with those types of ideas? Yeah. You know, we've always been a church that said that we want to build bridges, that we want to uh, win people to Jesus, that we want to uh, present Jesus in a way that's um, beautiful and just and good And the only way you can do that is if you're in conversation and relationship with people who aren't following Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so like, interesting, like our church, we, we don't have like a church sports leagues. And there's a really simple reason. We want you to go into the secular sports league and build relationships and friendships with the parent who has no interest in Jesus. And you're not going to do that if we have our own Christian sports league here. And I'm not against Christian sports league. So, Please don't get the wrong impression. Just an example. But when you have that mentality of like, we are constantly seeking ways to engage with our neighbor, to have a conversation with our neighbor, to invite our neighbor into our church. This is like, there's nothing controversial about what we did because that's what it was about. It wasn't about watching a movie about third term abortions. It was about inviting all the secular progressives in our city, literally into our church, meeting them building a relationship with them, having a generous, kind, charitable conversation with them. That's what it was about. And, and if that's part of your church's DNA that you actually think, yeah, we, we, we are called to make disciples and evangelize people, then guess what? You're going to be like the Apostle Paul. You're, you're going to go up to the Areopagus and be surrounded by every Greek idol imaginable. And you're going to say, hey, can we talk about Jesus a little bit? That's what we did, yeah. right? <laughs> That's all it was. But I think, again, I think a lot of churches, they, they think the goal of the church is to uh, escape. And their theology is escapism too. Like our job is to just bunker down, escape, and, you know, shelter in place until the apocalypse ends. Hmm. I know that you, you spend, you know, through the podcast, and I can even just tell because following you on Twitter and everything, you spend a lot of time learning about tribalism and diving into that. I would love to hear what are some of the things that um, that maybe you probably, that maybe you feel like you understand better because you have spent so much time learning about it that maybe the average person doesn't think about. Yeah, I, I, I think I think that there's a number of, takeaways that I got through the process of research. I mean, there is so much fantastic academic research on tribalism out there. And my co-author and I worked really hard to read as much of it as as we could possibly find and then translate that into everyday language using illustrations and application. I mean, our book is very conversational. It's not an academic book at all. Um, And that was our goal because we realized there's all this great research on tribalism out there, but the average person doesn't encounter it because, you know, we don't spend a lot of time reading academic books, which, you know, who does? Except for weirdos, I guess, like Keith and I. (laughs) Um, You know, there's a number of things I would say. Um, One of the biggest insights I got was I I think before we got into this project, I I really thought that there was a way to not be tribal. Mm -hmm. I kind of thought about myself as like an anti-tribalist. And one of the things I discovered through the research process was that actually everybody's tribal, even me. In fact, 
there is no way to escape tribalism. Tribalism is quite literally hardwired into the chemistry of our brains. And again, there's tons of research to prove this point. And so I had to wrestle theologically with that. Like, okay, well, God made us, so why in the world are we hardwired for tribalism? And it really became very clear to me the more I thought about it. In a world without sin, there is no division. Mm-hmm. And so all of the, the, let me tell you the upside of tribalism. The upside of tribalism is a feeling of belonging. The upside of tribalism is, is a feeling of uh, agreement with your peers. The upside of tribalism is the willingness to self-sacrifice for others who are in your tribe, to give of yourself for their sake, to give of your, your time, your resources, your life for them, and the other way around. The upside of tribalism is that you can't know everything, and, and that's what a tribe does. A tribe stores knowledge across various people, right? The plumber's got the toilet knowledge. The electrician's got the electrical knowledge. I have the Bible knowledge. Like we all, No one knows everything, and like tribes help you store all of this knowledge that helps you live a healthy and flourishing and productive life across a community of people who are sharing it with one another. There's a lot of beauties to tribalism. The problem is we don't live in Eden anymore. Uh, On this side of Eden, on this side of Genesis 3 in the fall, there is division. And that's where tribalism begins to metastasize because that, that, that positive side of belonging metastasizes into exclusion. Uh, the, the, the tribalism of, or the positive side of like, Hey, we're able to share and store knowledge metastasizes into, we are the only people who know the truth, the, the sense of, of love and camaraderie. Gosh, this is a great group metastasizes into hatred of the outsider. And that's what happens on this side of, 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 of the fall. And so no one escapes tribalism. The most important question you can ask in your life, RE tribalism is which tribe will I be a part of? Mm-hmm. Because you don't get to choose. You are a part of a tribe. There's no one in this podcast, as noble as you may think you are, who is not in a tribe. The question is, which tribe will I choose? And this is the real revolution of what Jesus did, because Jesus came to establish, in a real sense, a new tribe. I mean, uh, literally, in the New Testament, there's language talking about this as as a third kind of humanity, a new kind of humanity, because it's so different than the other kinds of things that came before it. But what's powerful about Jesus's tribe is that it short circuits all of the bad parts of tribalism, right? Mm-hmm. How does it do that? Well, first of all, normal tribes exclude. You have to have these things to be true about you to be a part of a tribe. It might be your, your ethnicity, your nationality, your political ideology, your gender, your sexuality, whatever it is, you have, to, you have to have alignment here to be a part of our tribe. Jesus tears down that wall and he says, there is literally no one who is not welcomed into my tribe. Everyone is welcome to come be a part of what I'm doing. Now, of course, you're not going to say the same once you're a part of that tribe. But the point is, there's literally there's no one on your street, no one in your workplace, no one who you cross paths with who isn't invited to come and be a part of what Jesus is doing. It doesn't matter what they've done. Racists are invited. Trans people are invited. Every imaginable kind of person is invited to this tribe. And so that's the first thing it does to tribalism. Is it says actually no exclusion. The second thing it does is that normal tribes um, want to be supreme over other tribes. They want to rule over other tribes. Sometimes they want to harm other tribes. Sometimes they want to uh, you know, neglect other tribes. And Jesus, he starts the first tribe that I know of in human history where this is the rule. Put other tribes first. Put their interests first. Lay down your life for their sake. And so, yes, we're in the Jesus tribe, but this tribe is unlike any other tribe because no one is excluded and we are called to serve and love those outside of our tribe, not to dominate them or hate them or push them away. What's the most challenging part of how Jesus engages with tribalism for you? I mean, I, I think it goes back to what we were saying earlier. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's enemy love, you know, when, when, when Paul says, 
uh, to, to Christians in Rome, not to take vengeance into their, into their own hands, but to leave it to God. Mm -hmm. So look, God's the judge. He'll, he'll, he'll make sure everything is sorted out in the end. Mm -hmm. Uh, but as for you, he tells them to bless those who persecute you, which he's taking from Jesus there. He tells them to love their enemies. He says essentially to win them over with kindness. Again, that is really, really, really hard. If you believe that the other party, uh, everybody in that party is either stupid or sinister, right? (laughs) They're either dumb and they believe what they believe or they're evil. And that's why they believe what they believe. Um, If you believe that to be called to love that person and to show them kindness and generosity, even when you think they're being sinister and everything that they're doing, that is a really unnatural impulse. And it has the net effect of changing your mind about that person, hmm. right? Because the more you pray for someone who wants to harm you, it's, it's hard to hate someone that you pray for. It's hard to think that they're evil or stupid if you pray for them. The more you love them, that means you have to be in their life, right? Like you're bringing them meals, you're inviting them over. The more you begin to realize, oh gosh, these are like sincere people who have some really good things about their lives. They're not sinister. They're not stupid. And so, and so, and so, so, so that little aspect of enemy love, it's really hard to do. And the irony though, is once you do it, it totally changes everything else. You'll stop seeing them the way that you saw them before. Hmm. Uh, I got one or two other things I want to ask you about, but before that, I always love giving people just the chance to go, Hey, uh, we've covered a lot of different stuff. Is there anything just top of mind that you want to make sure that we've met that we haven't talked about yet in the conversation? <laughs> uh, no, nothing immediately comes off of mind. I feel like we've done a great job uh, talking through the, the, the tribalism question. Okay, cool. I'd love to hear, what have you changed your mind about recently? Because you engage in so many conversations for the podcast, you know, you re- I, I could tell that you're a voracious learner as well. What what have you changed your mind about or gained a new appreciation or understanding for recently? Yeah, you know, um, we recently had on the podcast, Greg Lukianoff, who is the president of FIRE, which is the largest free speech organization in the country. And um, one thing I've been wrestling a lot with uh, has to do with free speech online. Um, I have both been the recipient of and watched others uh, receive some of the most um, awful anonymous speech imaginable. So these are trolls. They don't have their names, but they just say terrible things and they do terrible things online. And I'm also very aware of, of quote unquote free speech platforms like 4chan, which, you know, they descend into disinformation, racism, just awful, violent extremism, awful, awful, awful stuff. I'm also very aware of the fact that there are foreign governments that are actively promoting disinformation using our social media platforms. So it is a, it is a massive problem. In fact, 19 of the top 20 Christian Facebook pages are run by foreign troll farms. That's from an MIT tech report. And so for all those reasons, I've, I've, I'm actually in general, a very pro free speech person. I've been very, uh, kind of against free speech online. Uh, I, I don't love the idea of censorship and algorithms picking what wins and what loses. But when I look at the opposite option, I'd say, well, I'll take that, even if it means that, you know, my voice is silenced more than I wish it would be. Um, I'll, I'll take that over the the violent extremism, the the kind of hate and vitriol that comes from a non uh, user, anonymous users and 4chan and that kind of thing. And um, Greg really kind of changed my mind on that. He, he really he really resisted uh, my plea and, and process to do because I, I think that free speech is an instrumental good. Like I, I don't have a moral right to free speech. I can't say whatever I want. Like that's not a moral right. Um, I do have a instrumental, I do think it's an instrumental good because societies that have free speech, it promotes two things. First of all, the discovery of truth. 
if there's things you can't say, there will be truths that you won't discover. It also promotes, in general, persuasion over coercion, which I'm very for. Um, you have to have free speech to have persuasion. Um, and and Greg, you know, he pushed back and said, you know, I I don't think that what we need is more censorship online. Um, I also don't think that we need uh, government intervention, whether that's you know, Uncle Sam, Uncle DeSantis, or Uncle Newsom, whichever uncle you like, they all want to get involved in this particular debacle. Um, he, he said what, what, what we need is, is using existing free speech law for these social media companies to voluntarily not only create review boards, but put in place some, um, some, some, some very clear limitations on what they do and don't censor. Um, and make sure that it's not ideological. And his organization is putting out some of these prescriptions to, to help these organizations. And he says, I think if they can do that freely, um, that's going to, uh, in the end, uh, produce a, a healthier environment on the internet rather than a, a high censorship environment or a high governmental controlled environment. So you asked me a question. I got really, really specific with that. But he, he really changed my mind. Uh, I, 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 I was not very optimistic about these companies making the right decision. Um, and, and as we talked, I thought, you know what, if, if, if what he's saying is true, that the, there's a, there's a real path forward here. Mm, no, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. Well, I know that people are going to want to pick up the book truth over tribe and, you know, follow the podcast, all that stuff. Where's the best place for people to go to, you know, do all those things and keep up with you, Patrick. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you can pick up the book at any major bookseller online. Uh, you'll be able to find it. It's truth over tribe, pledging allegiance to the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. Um, my co-author and I don't keep any of the funds for this. It's all going back into ministry. This is really a passion project that we think is important for the health of the church. That's why we wrote it. Um, we also have a podcast, Truth Over Tribe. We're not very creative. We have the same name on everything. Uh, and, and whereas the book is more about what we've been talking about, how, how to resist tribalism, um, how to choose love in your relationships, the podcast is more about dealing with uh, cultural issues from a nonpartisan per perspective. Um, and so we bring on some of the best and brightest Christian and non-Christian thinkers to interview them on a huge variety of topics. We also do some episodes, just the two of us talking through some tough issues, and that's available on every podcast player that I know of <laughs> out there. Um, and if you want to follow us, um, my, my Twitter handle is Patrick K. Miller underscore. Um, I love interacting with people on Twitter. It's my one social media that I use. Um, I try to be responsive. Uh, so if you have any questions, feel free to reach out, DM me. Yeah, I, I, I think I can promise you'll get a response. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Patrick, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Uh, thank you for your work on this podcast. I, I think it's such a blessing to have podcasts like this and others that are helping Christians to um, learn and to orient themselves in, in culture in a way that's non-anxious, in a way that's not, you know, has access to grind. I, I, think, I think what you're doing is such a gift. And I'm so thankful for everybody listening to this. I think coming out of the conversation with Patrick and even just going through the book that him and his co-author Keith, you know, co-wrote together, wrote together. I think the biggest takeaway for me is how important it is for us to figure out what are the characteristics of the tribe that we belong to. And for those of us like myself who are a follower of Jesus or even, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, making sure that it's consistent with the values that you hold. And so for me, one of the values that I hold is, is being, being a person of love. 
And what that looks like for following Jesus is that it doesn't mean that you only love the people who agree with you. You love the people who disagree with you. You love the people who actually don't even like you. You love the people who are considered your enemies as well. And just realizing that this isn't a dynamic that we escape from. Tribalism is something that is going to be with us for a long time. It's how we're wired. It's more of what tribe are you a part of? And I would say, how do they treat the tribes that aren't them? And how do they treat the tribes who have less power than them? How do they treat the tribes that are different than them? I think it's just important that we we think of that stuff because because this dynamic of tribalism, people will play to it to use it to get us to join their tribe so that they can gain more power and gain more authority and gain more influence and not necessarily think about how it affects other people, which is why I think it's important for us to to be aware of this dynamic in us and how it is playing out and making sure that the tribe that we're a part of is consistent with our values and not and not contradictory towards them, especially for those of us who are followers of Jesus, who quite frankly, we do not do a good job of that. And the last several years have shown that just in the political sphere as well. And so that's my biggest takeaway from this. And so if you want to continue to learn with us, subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the newsletter as well, which I'll link to in the show notes and all of the stuff you could check out in the show notes for everything that we mentioned as well for Patrick's podcast and, and the book and all of that stuff. And in the newsletter, I just tell you all the things that I'm thinking about and all the things that um, has got my attention right now and some of the things that are really challenging me or maybe encouraging me as well. So those are some of the things that I'm thinking about. And yeah, I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Patrick for being on the podcast and uh, just having a very wonderful conversation. Thanks to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.